This is a UCD Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. My name is Dr Sinead McCann and I am a Public Engagement Officer at the UCD Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland for the project Prisoners, Medical Care and Entitlement to Health in England and Ireland 1850-2000. For details about the centre, please go to our website at www.ucd.ie forward slash history forward slash chomi. To listen to other episodes from our archive, please visit the centre's iTunes page or our media website chomi.org. This episode is a recording from the one day event Inside Reform Prison Healthcare Campaigns Past and Present a policy workshop hosted by the Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland and held at the National Gallery of Ireland on the 2nd of June 2017. Inside Reform was a policy event organised by the Wellcome Trust Senior Investigator Award Prisoners Medical Care and Entitlement to Health in England and Ireland 1850-2000. The co-principal investigators of this project are Associate Professor Catherine Cox, Director of the UCD Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland, and Professor Hilary Marland, Director of the Centre for the History of Medicine, University of Warwick. In this podcast, Fiona Nikaneda, Acting Director of the Irish Penal Reform Trust, presents her paper called Improving Prisoner Health, Using Advocacy Tools to Effect Change. Our final paper today, uh, in this session, rather not today, uh, is by uh, Fiona Nikaneda, uh, the Acting Executive Director of the Irish Penal Reform Trust. Have I got your title right? Yeah, I'm only pretending. Thank <laughs> <laughs> um, you. That's good. Enough about me. <laughs> I'm about to dumb everything down because I'm not an academic and I'm not about theory, I'm about practice, so um, please bear with me. It's been really interesting, I have learned so much, really interesting about the failure or otherwise of groups here to communicate across you know, prison and people working in the area of HIV and AIDS and also um, the issues of segregation which will, will come up in, in what I'm going to talk about. So I'm just going to talk whistle-stop whistle tour of IPRT's work, what we do, how we do it, what we have achieved. I'm not going to go through, we've had many achievements, but I'm going to zone in on a couple of advocacy tools that we, we have used successfully. Um, look at briefly at a case study about around reducing solitary confinement, and I use the word solitary confinement for a reason. Summarise the tools and approaches, and then a word of caution, be careful what you wish for, which some might already guess what, what happened there. Um, so, uh, IPRT, yeah, what we do. We are an independent campaign organisation. We are focused on progressive pol- policy change. We are not uh, service providers, and we don't represent individual prisoners. We represent uh, or promote the respect of their rights, but not individuals. So we don't follow a service provision model. Our work is in four areas, imprisonment as a last resort, youth justice, and then relevant to prison health in particular, human rights within the prison system, and penal policy and social policy. Um, 
in terms of uh, human rights within the prison system, I mean, it can be um, described succinctly at the, the, the rights put together, the equivalence of care principle, uh, the promotion of preventative services, and the, con the need for continuity of care on release from prison, recognising um, the, the transient nature, nature and um, um, the issues that... So, Anyway, I'll move on. And then with, uh, in terms of penal policy and social policy, I mean, we know prisons are, are full of um, the, the uh, failures in social policy. So failures in social policy contribute to the high numbers in prison. We know that our prison populations are characterized by poor health, people coming from poor socioeconomic backgrounds and uh, experience of social marginalization. Um, addictions, an estimated 70% of men in Irish prisons um, have addictions and 85% of women. Um, poor mental health, very high prevalence of mental health issues, estimated with males from 16 to 27% and women from 41 to 60%. And currently we have somewhere in the region of 20 to 30 prisoners in Cloverhill Prison awaiting transfer to the Central Mental Hospital because they've been assessed, their, their mental health issues are uh, so serious that, that they've been assessed um, that transfer is um, uh, the most appropriate thing. Um, so these are the issues, but we're about how we get change around. So how do we do it? Um, we have a very similar workflow, which I'm, I'm simplifying it here, but we start with identifying the issue. How we know the issue is from uh, board members with expertise, from communications, from individual prisoners, from reading research reports and inspection reports, but also watching what happens at the international level, because you can be sure if it's happening somewhere else, it is likely happening here. We do our research because we are very much grounded. We only talk about evidence-based policy. We don't go on anecdotal evidence or, or uh, rumour. So we do our research and evidence. We start with setting, looking at the, the human rights basis for it. We're looking at best practice. And we try to get data and evidence on, um, to know the prevalence of the issue we're looking at. Um, very scant in Ireland. So another policy, another campaign in point is trying to build the um, research capacity and um, provision of accurate data and evidence. Again, we could have another, uh, uh, we could have a whole session on that itself. From that we develop policy proposals, and this is a key part of our work, that we're very solution focused. We don't just criticise, but we say what they need to do about it. And we're mindful, we know the constraints that the state works within. Sometimes they're, we, we acknowledge them, but we ignore them because they're not reason enough to not do anything. Um, but um, it's all about solutions and not just complaining. And then the first stop is constructive advocacy, which is um, engaging in processes, making submissions, direct advocacy in meetings, building capacity sometimes in other organisations. So impressing upon the Irish Human Rights Equality Commission or the Ombudsman for Children's Office about what they should be doing it and getting it into their strategy so they're putting on pressure because they have more weight than us. And then we move, if that doesn't work, we move towards, I didn't want to write unconstructive advocacy, but certainly I know <laughs> this is the fun part, uh, if they're not paying attention, if we're getting no, no traction on it. Then we go out, then we start going to the media, then we go, start trying to, well, we're always using the, I'll come back to this later, international monitoring processes, you know, embarrassing Ireland on the world, on the, certainly the UN stage, people are, some people are nodding, they know, um, um, because Ireland, you know, we like to pride ourselves on our commitment to human rights, so when you go to Geneva and you say, well, you know what, there are still people 
last time we were there, flopping out in Irish prison. So it's, it's an important lever. But yeah, I didn't want to write unconstructive, but it could be viewed as unconstructive. But we know it works. So all of these pressures combine to bring about change. I'm simplifying it, but it's, it's in a nutshell. So what we have achieved, I'm not going to go through all of these, but just to say, we, we, we've had a sea change in penal policy since 2011, getting the numbers down. These are, um, uh, actually, sorry, just I should have said, going back, um, just in terms of prison health and how we've applied this to prison health areas, I think it's fair to say that IPRT probably hasn't been strong enough on, on prison health issues in itself. It's been a strand in our other work, particularly looking at discrete groups and minority groups. So um, we've, in 2013, we did a paper on women in the criminal justice system, 2014, a paper on um, uh, travellers in, uh, in the prison system, LGBT people in prison, that was early in 2016, and um, I'll return to our older people in prison because that's a word of caution at the end. So it's been a strand in our work, um, not a co core focus of work in itself, rightly or wrongly. Um, in all cases, what you find is what you need is, that, so these discrete groups are overrepresented in prison. They probably shouldn't be in prison at all, but if they are, they need a discrete health policy, and uh, policy in general, but a discrete health policy. Um, it's the same thing. We've had policy wins. We have, you know, on the prison side or on the state side, they've accepted the need for a policy, but implementation is the, the big challenge. Um, so in terms of um, uh, our, what we've achieved, I'm just going to zone in on some of the, the maybe almost the whole way down, um, because everything is almost achieved. In Ireland, we have this awful phrase, a lot done, more to do, and everybody goes, oh, um, um, but that, that's where we're at. But, you know, we have to say, there's been a sea change in penal policy where the Taunashton Minister for Justice only two weeks ago said that uh, prison should be a last resort um, for less serious offending, but we're halfway, you know, that, that's already a, a big statement. We've had a reduction in overcrowding, perhaps overall numbers down from 4,600 to um, about 3,700 today. I put maybe because landings open and close, you're never too clear what the ca actual capacity of a prison is, but on the surface of it, the numbers have been reduced. Um, slopping out is a health issue, and we've seen a reduction in the number of slopping out from 1,000 at the end of uh, 2010 to um, in around 50 today. So it's progress, it's nearly there. Now, just focusing, zoning in on, on um, how that happened, just briefly, we would say some key law, uh, court cases, and findings. Um, the risk and threat of compensation. A lot of court cases been settled, um, uh, or a lot of cases been settled out of court, which is less useful for IPRT but very good for the individuals and puts pressure on the state because it's costing them money. Um, and um, again, the embarrassment on the international stage, which is what IPRT loves to do. Um, in terms of improved prisons accountability, halfway there we do have. Um, I'm not sure if somebody else talked about prison deaths and custody reports, but um, since 2012, we have some improvements in accountability, but a long way to go. But just to talk about the alliances, so working with groups like the Ombudsman for Children's Office to um, uh, put pressure on the government for the extension of the complaints remit. I mean, these are just it's just talking about some tools and, and levers. Um, the end of imprisonment of, of children in Ireland, which is almost achieved, there's five um, boys 
in, in uh, Wheatfield Prison today. And I say boys because this is where we get into the framing. We talk about children, we talk about boys, and everybody pays attention to it. If we talk about teenagers, if we talk about young people, which is how they would prefer to be described for sure, then the, the sympathy doesn't, um, it doesn't attract as much sympathy. So we do that on purpose. Um, um, the, the success of that, I mean, in a nutshell, how that has been brought about was through uh, timing, media work, and amplification. And I'll return to that with, with the tools. Um, I will focus in on reduction in solitary confinement in a minute, but just to talk about health and mental health. I can only speak since 2009 about what IPRT has achieved, because that's as long as I was there. And I know previous 2009, there were big policy wins around um, eliminating the use of padded cells, and former um, employees of IPRT certainly focused a lot on um, responses to HIV and AIDS in, in prison, but that's before our time. What, what we have now, to, just to be a bit critical about IPRT, I, I think perhaps we haven't done enough. Um, we know that prison health, thanks to the Committee for the Prevention of Torture, we know prison health in some prisons is in a state of crisis, which is a very bold statement. Um, we have issues of expertise internally, I think, that we don't know exactly what we want. IPRT is clear that we need to have a comprehensive review, an independent review of prison health provision. Uh, there's been a loose commitment for a cross-departmental Department of Health and Irish and Department of Justice uh, review of the prison system. We think we want prison health to be under the HSE, um, but we don't know. We don't have the expertise inside, and we know there's there's uh, uh, mixed mixed. What would I say? Um, evaluations internationally. And um, the, the big thing with prison health is a lot of the issues lie outside the prison system. So we have a health service that generally is in a state of crisis. And um, the, the need and the levers for interagency, cross-departmental work together across. So on a positive side, I thought I'd talk about what we did do <laughs> that worked. Um, and I'd be really interested in finding out what more we could do in terms of prison health. So it's a good learning experience for us. So this is an example, in, and, and I'm simplifying it again for the purpose of this. So around 2011, 12, 13, we had nine, up to 800, 900 um, men in prison on so-called protection, and 211 of those were locked up for more than 22 hours a day. Anecdotally, we were hearing that some of them had been so held, in some cases, for years at a time. Uh, Peter McVeary said five or six years, but there was no evidence, no published data available for us to pull on that. We were particularly concerned at the combination of being locked up 23 hours a day in isolation and uh, the lack of an independent prisoner complaint system. So these two things together are, are a matter of um, very uh, deep concern. And we hit a lot of walls. We tried using um, parliamentary questions to get answers to data, but however way it's phrased and it's difficult to collate the information that you're looking for, the information we were getting was, was scant. Um, the protection, so prisoners in Ireland, so the, the idea of protection was, it was at their own request. I feel unsafe in this prison, I want to be locked up for 23 hours a day. So it's like, you asked it, what can we do? And it was uh, a response to safety and safety concerns, real deep felt safety concerns. Um, so we were hitting a lot of walls in that regard. And then a game changer happened, which is, um, uh, 
October, November, December. Uh, 2011, but the UN and the Council of Europe almost at the same time issued statements around the use of prolonged isolation and called it solitary confinement, and they gave us a definition we could use. It was really important. It wasn't, we, in our minds, when we think solitary confinement, we think about the four square feet and no light and deprivation of, of, um, of uh, or sensory deprivation. But these, these definitions got away from the actual conditions of the cell. It was the prolonged isolation that was the point. Uh, the reason for the isolation was not relevant. It was the fact of the isolation. And um, also, helpfully, that you could be shared. There could be two of you in a room, but it still amounted to prolonged isolation because it was isolation from the general prison population. And this was a game changer for us because it defined solitary confinement as being so held for 22, we used to say 23 hours a day, and then we were, oh, bloody hell, so we dropped it by an hour, <laughs> um, which was great. So that was one aspect of it, really important to get away from. So you couldn't hide behind this protection and they requested it themselves anymore, really important. And the other thing, clear statement, by the UN Special Rapporteur, uh, what then, then Special Rapporteur Juan Mendes, which is that isolation beyond 14 or 15 days had such negative psychological effects that it would be irreversible. Now, irreversible is a term that everybody goes, whoa. And now this is when we're reframing safety. So what is it doing in this case? You know, is this contributing to public safety? Arguably, well, no, not arguably, definitely not, which is much more powerful. So it's a short-term, it's um, a short-term response to an immediate safety concern within the prison system that you can make strong arguments would lead to a decrease in public safety in the long term because if people are getting irreversible psychological effects um, and almost all prisoners in Ireland are going to be released at some point in the future. So it was a good um, lever for us. But these were game changers, and it's about the language and the framing. So protection was gone. And in fairness to the prison, system, prison service, they've also changed it now. They call it, um, restrict, they, they use the term restricted regimes. They don't talk about so solitary confinement, but we'll get there. Um, so what did we do? This is all the, the nuts and bolts. We created a focusing event. So what we did was we developed a briefing. We held, we brought um, Dr. Sharon Shalov over to give an annual lecture, and we um, got a hundred people into a room to focus on this issue. And uh, we always, we have we should acknowledge that the prison service and the Department of Justice and on the agency side do attend our events and listen and take it on board. Uh, we engaged with the media. That was a really important part of it. So we got an item on Morning Ireland, and we're now using the word solitary confinement, solitary confinement in Ireland, but that doesn't happen in here. We're like, yes, it does. Um, there were, uh, a, for a former prisoner was willing to speak anonymously, and that was hugely impactful. Um, the Director General of the Irish Prison Service also addressed the issue, and that has to be acknowledged. Sharon Shalov brought her expertise to it, and it was huge. Um, so the results, the immediate result is that, and this has to be acknowledged on the IPS side, is they started conducting a quarterly census and publishing those reports. So now every quarter we see what the numbers are in what we call solitary confinement, and they still call restricted regimes, but we're getting there. Um, recently, they've started actually putting down the ages, so we can now see the age groups of those people that are being held, just acknowledging that the, the younger you are, uh, the deeper the, the impact, or the more negative the, the impact. I mean, in bold figures, the numbers held on 22 or 23, our lockup has been reduced from 211 to 44 in April this year. Now, it's been up and down, it's been as low as 31, but it's usually around the 70 mark, um, so we're on the way. 
Um, and we have a piece of legislation going through, again, from uh, banging a drum, a piece of legislation going through the prison solitary confinement bill. I don't know how far it will go. Our politics here at the moment are there's a lot of opportunity with the minority government, but also a, a less stable environment, so you don't know, but it's good. And I, I'm just going to zip through this because I realise I am uh, way over. So, tools. Gather the evidence. Know what you're talking about. Always. Uh, frame or reframe. Frame in the children, not teens or young people, or reframe, it's not protection, it's solitary confinement. Uh, we do a lot of work in terms of building capacity, so law seminars, to arming arming legal professionals with the, the tools. We don't have the capacity to do this ourselves, and we have one experience of taking a case um, which uh, dragged on and didn't cost IPRT a lot of money in the end, but it wasn't the shortest, most effective route to change in, in Ireland, certainly. Building capacity and using the political levers, so uh, uh, asking the parliamentary questions, engaging Engaging with the legislation, trying to get key commitments into the programme for government, engaging with international monitoring is so important. We do it before the monitoring happens, we're already communicating. During the, the, uh, during the international monitoring, so I'm talking about, for example, coming up the UN Convention Against Torture, or in, in January at the CEDAW, uh, uh, but the big one for us, I have to say, from the prison's perspective, is the engagement with the, the Committee for the Prevention of Torture. And then, but, so you have before the monitoring, during, and then after, and this leads into the react and amplify. Inspection reports sit on shelves. It's our role. We go out, we amplify. We make a big deal out of it. So I think we, we IPRT is a, a very important lever in all of this. Um, engaging with the public debate, so we just have a, we, 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 we will go out there and to discuss the tough questions. We won't hide from it and we don't expect the other side to hide from it. Um, create the focusing events if nobody uh, if nobody's paying attention, just do something, create something, you know. I mean, the simple one is report, launch, media work, but, you know, that can get a bit tired too, but it works. And just this the top secret bit, uh, levers and time, and just consider this, that it can help on the department end that we are making arguments in the media that support their arguments for more resources from the financial department. And we, we know that. This is, you can ask me again during the Chatham House Rules part of that, and I will explain it further, but it's not for this. And finally, be careful what you ask for. This is a very sad story. Last October, IPRT launched the rights, needs, and uh, experiences of older people in prison that made very strong arguments for the need for different facilities to and um, focusing in on the healthcare needs, mobility issues, mental health, dementia, etc. And at the launch, which was very well attended by, um, you know, decision makers, it was like, that's great, we have what we need now, um, you know, we'll, we'll plough on with that, which is great. <laughs> and then in March this year, an announcement was made that they're going to close the training unit and they're going to reopen it in future uh, as an older person's facility. The training unit is the only Dublin-based semi-open facility for prisoners. It's the net effect of this it is reducing the capacity, the open prison capacity from under 9%, which is low anyway, to under 7%. So you need to be careful what you ask for and foresee what the knock-on effect might be somewhere else. That's it.